0: We're going to be in Romans 10, verses 18 through 21, and I'll start reading at verse 17 just to help us understand what it's talking about when we get to verse 18. The Holy Spirit tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all the day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Sometimes when I start a sermon, I like to tell a story to help us think about it. And I could not think of a better story today than the one that Jesus told. So I'm going to read us a little bit more scripture just to help us start thinking about this. Because Jesus told a parable called the Parable of the Tenants that teaches almost exactly the same point as what Paul is teaching in these verses at the end of Romans. He says in Matthew 21, verse 34, it says, Jesus said to them, and when he says to them... He's talking about to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. He said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. He's talking about John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So here another parable. Here's Jesus' story to help us understand this. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This is a picture of God establishing the nation of Israel. He says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This is what Jesus says elsewhere. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute as he sent messenger after messenger to them? And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. That's Jesus. Saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, And have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. I think at that point they didn't quite understand that he was talking about them, did they? But then Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They finally got it. See what's going on here. It's the same teaching in in these verses in Romans that Jesus was talking about here, having to do with a a principle of what was going on with Israel. Now this is kind of the context of this whole big chunk of Romans that we're in that starts at Romans 9 verse 1 and goes to the end of chapter 11 is, is this hard question of, Why is it that so many of the Jewish people have rejected the Jewish Messiah whose name is Jesus? How could it be when they had waited so long, when they had all the scriptures that were pointing to Jesus? How could it be that when he came in person, that such a small percentage of them actually believed in him, and such a large percentage of them rejected him? How could that be? And in the verses that came right before where we are, in verses 14 through 17... What we saw last week, he kind of moved to a more general principle, not, not just speaking about the Jewish people, but speaking about all people, that the way that God saves anybody is that they must hear the word of Christ. That faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But now he, he takes that general principle about how the gospel has to go out to anybody in order for them to be saved, and he turns back around and he says, but what's going on here with the Jewish people? Why is it, is it, is it that they haven't heard the gospel? Is it that they haven't understood the gospel? What is going on here? And we're going to see that this is so much about, these verses are so much about the relationship between God and the Jewish people, but we're not going to, to keep it far removed from us. Because one thing that you could do in a passage like this in the scriptures, you could, you could say, oh, well, this is about those people over there. And it kind of sort of is. It kind of sort of is about those people over there. And and one of the things that the Bible really actually does do is it helps us to be able to look out at the world and at the people around us and to be able to understand things in a biblical way. That's called having a Christian worldview. But it's not just a window. The Bible is also a mirror. That's the way that James talks about it, that when we come to the scriptures, if we're only looking at it as a window about what's going on over there and we're not turning around and looking at it as a mirror unto our own soul, then we are hearers of the word who are not going to be doers of the word, and you can say, woe is me. So what we ought not to do when we read things like Jesus' parable where the Pharisees got upset at the end, we ought not to say, boy, those Pharisees sure do stink, and then not realize that it has something to do with me. And it has something to do with you. It's a mirror on our own souls. And when we come to this passage, that's this question about, well, what is going on with the Jewish people? Why have so many not believed the gospel? We shouldn't come away from this and just say, oh, I can't believe that that group of people is like that. That is not the point of this passage. This ought to be something that points our souls toward Christ and toward reflection on our own attitudes because we are talking about human beings with fallen sinful natures and we are human beings that were born with fallen sinful human natures and we are susceptible to the same kinds of tendencies as any other sinners. And so what we're going to do, and you see this on the back of your bulletin with these four points that I put there, is that we're going to look at these in terms of what we should do with this. We, what, what are these, uh, as we go through these verses, what should we do? And so I put four imperatives there for you. And the first thing that we ought to do is we ought to hear and understand the gospel call. Hear and understand the gospel call. So let's look at this in verses 18 into the beginning of verse 19. He says, but I ask, have they not heard? Now that comes because he just said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what he's saying is, Have my fellow countrymen, the Jewish people, that he's expressed a deep, deep love and concern for, that he's even said that that he has considered what it might even be like to give up his own soul in exchange for them if that were possible because he loves them so deeply. He's saying, what is going on here? If faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ is the reason that they haven't believed because they haven't heard about Christ. That's what he's asking. But he says, indeed they have. And then he he quotes some scripture to talk about the way that they have. He says, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And he's quoting Psalm 19 verse 4 right there. Now i got to pause real quick because this is one of these places where sometimes people will say, well, the Apostle Paul doesn't understand the Bible at all. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 19.4 in a way that's not what Psalm 19.4 is talking about at all. That that would be the accusation here. Because what Psalm 19.4 is talking about, it's talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God. It's talking about what he had already talked about in chapter 1, about how everybody in the whole world is able to see from the reality of the creation around us that there is a God who made all this, that we're accountable to him, that we ought to worship him, that's that's kind of what it's talking about. And so the question is, well, when when Paul is saying, well, they have heard the gospel, and he quotes Psalm 19.4, does Paul totally misunderstand Psalm 19? Well, no, he doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't at all. And, and I think if you were to ask Paul, is that is that is that what Psalm 19 means? I think he'd tell you, no, that's not what Psalm 19 means. I'm saying these words because they're in my heart all the time. And I'm thinking about these words, about how the their voice has gone out, and I'm just quoting it because it's the reality that the voice of the gospel has gone out. So it, it kind of reminds me of this one time I saw several years ago, I saw on Facebook where a friend of mine from my doctoral studies had had taken a group of men out into the woods for uh, for this men's retreat, and on on the men's retreat they caught a rattlesnake, killed it, and grilled it, and you know to them they were just like yeah, and I just saw that, and I I I don't want anything to do with that. Now I mean for those of, for those of you who are into that kind of thing. That's fine. Jesus declared all foods clean. That's okay. All right. But I just don't have any interest in that at all. And I, the comment that I made on Facebook was, brothers, these things ought not to be. And, and, and I, I should have thought through that a little bit more because they, they, these guys, you know, my friend got really confused. He was looking up that verse in James where it says these brothers, these things ought not to be. And he was like, are you, are you saying that we, we have fresh water coming out of one side of our mouths and salt water coming out of the other side of our mouths? What are you talking about? And I, I was not talking about James. It's just the words that came to mind. All right. So I think something similar is going on here with what Paul is doing. He's not saying here is the correct way to interpret Psalm 19. He's just saying these words are in my heart and I'm going to say them because the voice of the gospel has gone out. The voice has gone out. And so what he's getting at here is, yes, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. He's saying, yes, the Jewish people have received the gospel. What he's getting at here is is that there has been no lack, even at this point in history, of the gospel of Jesus Christ going out all across the Jewish world. As Paul himself was going from city to city preaching in the synagogues, and he wasn't the only one. Just keep in mind that he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he hasn't been to Rome yet. There's other people who are going around the world and preaching the gospel and starting in the synagogues in every city saying, you who are here to know God, you need to know he has already sent his Messiah. His name is Jesus. He has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead. They have preached the gospel. That's what he's getting at. He said in, in Colossians 1.23, something really similar. He says, the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's saying, it has gone out widely. Now, that kind of makes us wonder, well, does that mean we don't have to send the gospel out anymore? D- does that mean, well, it's already gone out enough, we can quit? Well, no, because he's going to say in Romans 15 verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand so two things true at the same time paul recognizes and we need to recognize there are people and places out there where the gospel has never been preached and it is high priority to get the gospel to those people and places and the gospel has gone out widely and those who have heard and have not believed ought to have believed and he's, he's getting across here. The gospel has gone out across the known Jewish world. And then he asked the question in verse 19, but did Israel not understand? Maybe this, you don't have the excuse they haven't heard. Maybe the excuse is that they didn't understand. Well, they didn't understand in some level, those who haven't believed, because they didn't receive it as good news. On some level, you have to know that everybody who rejects the gospel, the Bible says that they have a veil over their hearts, that the devil, as Jesus put it in the parable of the, the, the sower, is often coming and taking away the seed. They're just not hearing, not listening to these things. But on another, another level, yes, they got it, and they said, no, thank you. What, what a terrifying thing. For someone to hear and understand the gospel, and to say, "Not for me, not for me," let's let's do a couple things. Let's pray that the gospel would go out more widely. We talked about that last week. That's what all these verses right before it were talking about. Let's pray that that the gospel would go out as widely. As the sun shines, just as the heavens are declaring the glory of God all over creation, let's be part of the mission for the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ to go out over all the earth, for the the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the whole earth as the waters cover the seas. Let's pray for that, and let's recognize the gospel is already shining right here. And as the gospel is shining right here, let's not make the mistake of, of those that Paul is talking about. Let's not make the mistake of hearing and of understanding, but of turning our hearts away. We need to hear, we need to understand, and we need to turn our hearts to Christ. There are those who hear, but they close their ears. Don't do that don't close your ears. Don't say to yourself, okay, this is just the stuff I've heard all along. This is just the stuff religious people have said my whole life. Being bad is bad and being good is good. I get it. Okay. No, you don't get it. (laughs) The point is the person of Jesus Christ. Open your ears. Pray that God would open ears too, just as he did for Lydia when he opened her ears to hear and understand the gospel. Open your mind to understand. Don't assume, yes, I've heard it, I get it, let's move on. Absolutely not. Let's keep on. Even as those who have heard, have understood, have believed, let's keep on listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's keep on understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's never let our hearts callous over to where we say, okay, there's hearing and understanding to be done, but that's for somebody else. Let me move on to seven steps for a better relationship with my wayward child or whatever else it is. Those things are applied in the Scriptures all over, but we need to hear and understand the gospel deeply. I want to know, do you understand These things that we... I told you these things last week. I've told you these things many times about these four things that you need to know to share the gospel. God, man, Christ, response, right? God is God. He is our creator and our lawgiver and our judge. Man is a sinner against God, which puts us in a position of of complete hopelessness, lostness, and being destined to hell in our sins. And yet Christ has come to be the solution and the only solution. As both God and man who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross perfectly for our sins, who rose from the dead. And, and, and then there's the response. What is the proper response to to have eternal life in Jesus? Well, it's it is to believe, to have a turning to him, a repentant turning to him in faith Resting our souls on him alone so that we can have forgiveness in eternal life. You know that. You need to know that so that you can tell people that. But I also want to know, God, man, Christ, response, does that sink down into your own heart? Do you understand that God is your God? That God is your judge? Do you understand that you have sinned against this holy God and that the right punishment for that sin is death and not just physical death That eternal conscious torment in the fires of hell, that is the right punishment for any level of sin against the infinitely holy God. Do you understand that that's true for you? Do you understand that Christ is the only solution for you? That Christ is God who has come in the flesh for you, died on the cross risen from the dead, offering you personally eternal life? Do you personally exercise that final thing, the response? Trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for your eternal life, repenting of your flesh's love of sin, forsaking it and trusting in Christ alone. See, if we say to ourselves, okay, those other people over there, they haven't heard very well, they haven't understood very well. It's so easy for us to say, well, I heard, I understood, I moved on from that a long time ago. But we need to keep this on the forefronts of our minds, Christians. The fact that God is still our God, that we are still sinners in need of His forgiveness. That we, even as we've been redeemed and we're also saints at the same time, we keep on needing his forgiveness. Do you understand that we got to keep it on our minds that Christ is today, today? Maybe you were born again 40 years ago, but Christ today is the only solution for you. Do you understand? Is it on the front of your mind to keep on trusting in him alone? To keep on hating your sin and loving Christ. This this is what we need to know. I, I also want to know, as he talks about hearing and understanding this, this good news, this gospel that's gone out into the ends of the earth. Do you hear and do you understand the difference between the law and the gospel? Do, do you understand? I, I, the, one of the reasons I, I think about that is I just listened to an audiobook this week. I, I listened to... I tend to end up listening to more audio books than I read paper books these days. I don't know whether that's good or bad, probably bad. But I listened to this audio book this week by a pastor who's well-known and and well-respected in certain circles, and and one of the very first things I realized when I started listening to it is, this man does not know the difference between the law and the gospel. There, There was immediately in the book, and then throughout the book, this, this talk of, well, the gospel is not just about how Jesus forgives us of our sins. The gospel is also about how we ought to serve people and love people. What, a, what an incredible confusion. Because the law says that we ought to love and serve people, and the law is good and right in that. The gospel doesn't say, though, what we are to do. The gospel says what God has done for us. It, 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 you see the, what's going on here? I'm not saying that loving and serving people is bad. I'm saying it's absolutely good. But when you start saying that that's the gospel, the, then you need to hear and you need to understand. And, and it's just been disturbing to me, even this week, that there's, there's these pastors out there who are, are said in, in some circles to be solid pastors who, who don't even seem to get the difference between what God has done and what we are to do the reason I'm bringing all this up here is it says, have they not heard? Did they not understand? Guys, we need to keep on hearing and we need to keep on understanding. When you think to yourself, I'm done hearing, I don't need to hear anymore. I'm done understanding, I don't need to understand anymore. Then you're at risk of closing your heart. Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those who sprung up for a brief time And then, didn't bear fruit because you wouldn't hear and you wouldn't understand. All right? Second, well, let me just say, read something else that Jesus said in in Matthew 13. He said, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed, listen to this. Pray that this would be the case and continue to the end, to be the case in your heart. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Keep on hearing the word of God and understanding and growing in grace. Second, don't presume that your group is God's group. Look at verse 19. He said, did Israel not understand? And then he says this, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. What is this talking about? Well, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 32. It's the quote of, of the second half of verse 21 of Deuteronomy 32, but I'll read you all of Deuteronomy 31, 32, 21. It says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will prov- provoke them to anger with a foolish nation Robert Haldane the way he describes this he says as they have given their love and their hearts to others besides God in the same way God would give his love and his heart to others beside them it's saying what God was getting across there in Deuteronomy is you you want to divide your love between me and idols between me and and other gods. And yet you expect me to be devoted to you alone. Well, he says to them, I'm going to make you jealous. I'm going to do that with those who are not a nation. I'm going to take, he says, a foolish nation and make you angry. You know what that is? That's a a prediction right there of what God was going to do especially at the coming of Christ. Not, not just at the coming of Christ, but especially at the coming of Christ in beginning to bring in this massive, massive number of believers into the kingdom from not just the Jewish people, but from the Gentiles. It's a prediction of that, how God would do that. When, when it says, those who are not a nation, Peter kind of connects to this in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That verse is one of the ways that we know that this was written to, especially to Gentiles, is it talks about those who were not a people, Here's the idea: You had over here uh, on the one hand the Jewish people, who God had had from the time of Abraham uh, told that He would raise up into a people and and that He would make them as as numerous as the stars of the sky and and the sands of the seashore and and He said He also said in the middle of that, from your seed shall all the the families of the earth be blessed. So you have have on the one hand those that God has made this. Jewish people, but on the other hand, you've got the whole mess of the rest of us from all over the place with all kinds of backgrounds, which are all under the sovereignty of God and all directed according to his circumstances. But the, what, what, what he calls us there is not a people, just, just a bunch of folks just out there. But he says, I'm going to take those who were not a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And he says, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. That's me right there, the foolish nation. Here's, here's what he says in, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one: It pleased God through the folly, the foolishness, the stupidity of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then he goes on later in that chapter and says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Ah, oh, I love it. God, God is so wise, and he has done things in kind of a hilarious way there. This is the humor of God. He, he loves to take what is low and despised and foolish, And bring us in. He loves to do that. But he says here that part of that is an act of judgment, but also an act of discipline and an act of calling out to those that he hasn't brought in. He says that God's bringing in of those who are not a nation and of these foolish people from all over the place, it was to make Israel jealous. Now, he's, he's going to go on and talk about this more in chapter 11, so we're going to go through it a lot more when we get to chapter 11, but I just have to pause here and say really quickly that sometimes those of us who hold to a Reformed and covenantal perspective of the Bible, sometimes we get uh, accused of holding to, to uh, this thing that people will sometimes call replacement theology. And when we're accused of holding to replacement theology, the accusation against us is, well, we think that God has just given up on the Jewish people and replaced them with the church. Okay? Well, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches here. What, it, what it's going to teach, and we'll see this in chapter 11, is that God has one and only one people. Only one olive tree. But from that olive tree, he's able to cut off branches... And he's able to graft in other branches from outside. The way that olive tree is described in John 15 is not as an olive tree, but as a vine, that Christ is the vine, and we are the branches. And so what we're going to see here is that, yes, absolutely, God had a plan for Israel, and God brought Jesus out of the people of Israel but when so, so many refused to believe in Christ that there were many, many branches cut off of the olive tree for unbelief and many, many branches from the Gentiles grafted in. But was that for the purpose that God would ultimately destroy Israel, give up on Israel? No, it says, I will make you jealous. I'll make you jealous. It's part of his plan. He's going to go on and say in Romans 11:11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We'll talk more when we get there about what that means, but it says now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. You see what's going on here? God has snuggled up to people of all kinds of nations and tongues and tribes, and in doing that, he says, I want to make Israel jealous so that they'll come, so that they'll come back to me. One of the things, though, that we need to do here, again, not just to look out and say, well, what has happened over there with those people, but to notice this could happen our kind of people, too. They had just sort of presumed, well, we just are the kind of people who are God's people, and do you know that that can happen among people in a Baptist church, too? That you could just say, well, we just are God's kind of people. We just don't need to worry about it. Well, let's not do that. Maybe we should notice when God is at work among other people, uh just just an example of that there was a you know all this big news uh that that had gone around uh, a couple was it a couple months ago now about the the asbury revival you know this thing that began as a chapel service at uh, asbury university with uh students being called to confess sins and to repent and and kind of turned into a week's long worship service kinds of thing now the, the big question went out about that. Well, is this a genuine revival? or Are these things really of the Holy Spirit? And I just have to say, I don't know that we can really know that until we see the fruit years out. <laughs> so I don't know. But what what we don't want to do is we don't want to be half the people on the Internet who just jumped on and said, because this group is not my group of Christians, and because I disagree with them about these things, therefore God absolutely is not working there, and this absolutely is not a work of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy who says, no, God can't possibly be at work there because they don't have everything right. I, I think that when we see God at work, we, we need to praise God for that. When we don't know if God's at work, we need to pray that he would be at work. And I still don't know if that's genuine revival that happened there. I pray that it would be. But when we see God at work in other places, we need to praise God for it, and we need to not presume that our group just is God's group. We we can't ever presume that we are just the kind of people who make up God's church. You know, there's a lot, a lot of churches scattered across this state, scattered across this world that are no longer preaching the gospel, that a long time ago turned away from the gospel to just being sort of a community club of, of good works. And a lot of times what happened in places like that is that they, they clung on to things like family heritage instead of clinging to the gospel. They clung on to things like, I grew up in this church, so this is my church. They clung to things like my church has my family's name on the stained glass windows. And so this is my church and we are God's people. They clung to things like this church would have fallen apart without the money that my family gave. And so we need to have the say about how things go around here. Now, we don't want to say that that our heritage is insignificant. We don't want to say that our giving to the work of the Lord is insignificant. They are very significant. But when you start to say these things are the proof of who are the real people of God, the families that have been around forever, the people that have given the highest numbers, when you start to think that's what the church and the people of God are built on, then God, you just might find God turning elsewhere and saying, I'm going to make you jealous of a people whose names are not on the stained glass windows. I am going to make you angry with a whole bunch of foolish people from outside who are not at all refined like those that that were brought in generations ago. We don't want to be among that. We want to define ourselves as the people of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we stand on. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be a people who have a common faith in Jesus. That has to be the center of our fellowship. You know, if you don't have a belief in the gospel, then there can be a history of growing up in the church, a family name all over the old things of the church. But those things, if you're not clinging to the gospel, you know what they're going to do on the Day of Judgment? they're going to be evidence against you. The amount of money that you put into the church's bank account will be evidence against you on the day of judgment if you do not hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ and find your hope in Christ alone. The question I think that you could hear coming from the throne of heaven is, if your name was on the stained glass window, why did you not believe in the Christ who was preached there? If you grew up in the church, why did you not believe? You heard week after week? If you knew that you needed to give all of this work to the or all of this money to the work of the Lord, why did you not believe in the work of the Lord of the preaching of the gospel that was coming to your ears week after week? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Don't presume to say to yourself we just are God's kind of people. God's kind of people are those who he has brought by faith to the person of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, another thing that we need to do when we get to verse 20 is we need to rejoice when God saves unlikely people. Rejoice when God saves unlikely people. Look at verse 20. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not Ask for me. Now, you know what he's doing? He's saying this, was, this is something that was shown back in the books of Moses in Deuteronomy. This is something that is shown in the age of the prophets through Isaiah, just like he did back in chapter 9 when he was proving the doctrine of election from various parts of the Bible from back in the books of Moses and then into the prophets and all throughout the Old Testament. He's showing, well, this was predicted all throughout the Old Testament as well. And look in the book of Isaiah. He says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have been shown to those who did. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's from Isaiah 65, verse 1. And we've seen this mentioned a little bit already about a chapter ago. At the end of of chapter 9, he said, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You got the same idea there, that that there are those who were the insiders in some way, but when Christ came along, what happened? They stumbled over him while the outsiders came and staked their souls upon him on the rock of Christ. And that's what's happening. Those who did not seek me found me. Now just remember... Paul and some, I I, I always, I, when I see things like this, I kind of think, what what is Paul thinking about himself and his own history here? And I guess I can't really know that, right? But on one way, we are hearing here from an apostle who grew up in that tradition and was in fact among those who rejected the gospel, who was watching people come in from the outside and despised it, he rejected it. In the other sense, though, he was also he was somebody who was not seeking God. He was against God. And what happened? God sought him. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. It's incredible, isn't it? And God has brought people in from all kinds of situations, all kinds of places. God has brought people in from children who've grown up in the church who came to an understanding of the gospel through that, that very, very unexciting sounding way of just hearing it preached over and over and being in families where they told them the gospel. That's one way that God brings people in, but there's other ways where God brings people in who were just absolutely barreling toward hell, did not care, were just out there pursuing sin to the highest degree, and God got a hold of them when they heard the gospel, and God saved them and God brought them in. And, and what was happening here that, that Paul is talking about is that there's this kind of jealousy that's stirred up when Israel sees these unlikely people coming in. And I want to know, what do we think when we see unlikely people coming in? In one sense, you could say to yourself, well, it's going to make the church feel different if those people come in. Now, I've I've been blessed by this church. i got to say that. When God has brought in some of you weirdos, we get to just rejoice about that, all right? But you may have also heard some of the same horror stories that I have heard about places where people will say, we don't want those kinds of people in here. You know, Maybe we ought to get a different pastor who will bring in a different kind of people who are the more refined people like we're looking for. Those kinds of stories are out there, and let's guard against our hearts against that, but let's just rejoice when, when God brings in those who did not seek him. God brings in all kinds of people. An example of, of this happening from turning for, from the Jews to the Gentiles in, in terms of preaching is in Acts 13.45. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ah, praise God for that. God brought in these unlikely people, and let's praise him when we see that. And then finally in verse 21, let's humbly receive God's offers of mercy. Humbly receive God's offers of mercy. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's a quote from Isaiah 65, 2. He quoted the verse before it in verse 20, and then he quotes this verse 2 in verse 21. What you see here is the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel in terms of the words of the gospel going out and reaching people's ears. This is what we call the external call. It's the kind of call that goes out by God's grace, and it's a real call. And it's a real offer. Anytime one person tells another person, here is who Jesus is, and you can be saved, come to Jesus. That's a real, actual offer to receive salvation, forgiveness, eternal life from God. But when it's not accompanied with the internal call, then all it is going to do is going to bounce off of a hard heart. The problem there is not the gospel. The problem there is not God. The problem is the sin of the human heart that resists. And that's what you see here. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He called, and they wouldn't come. Why did they not come? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.14 says... Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. It's a veil over their hearts. It said back in Romans 8, 7 and 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And it says in John six forty four, No one can come to me, that's to Christ, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there is the external call that's a real call, but without God graciously changing their hearts, it's going to bounce off. And that's what has happened, he says, to most of the Jewish people. Hardened hearts, even though he is holding out his hands of grace to them. Nobody who rejects the gospel is innocent. Nobody who rejects the gospel can stand on the day of judgment and say, God, it's your fault for not changing my heart. God, it's your fault because for that guy over there, you took away his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh, and you let my heart of stone stay here, so it's your fault, God. Nobody's going to be able to say that. It's our own fault if we reject the gospel. Our sin is our own fault. God is completely sovereign over everything. And you also see man being completely responsible for his sin and for his rejection of the gospel. You want to see that? Well, just flip back to chapter 9. You know what chapter 9 is all about? God is completely sovereign over who is going to be saved. And then you flip forward to chapter 10 where we are right now and what do you see? Man is completely responsible when he rejects God's call to be saved. Both of those things are completely true. But you see here something about God, something about God's glory, something about God's kindness, something about God's compassion and his patience. You see here God in that compassion holding out his hands even to those who will never take him up on his offer of salvation. God holding out this free offer, God having compassion even on the reprobate, even on those that he called in chapter 9, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There is no way that anybody is ever going to be able, in the end, to look at God and say, God, you were evil in this. No, what we see here instead is a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people that's what you've got there but what do we do that with that well listen to god's compassionate call to you we've said open up your ears to hear and to understand the gospel And when you see God holding out his hands to you in compassion, when you see God reaching out to you and offering you an opportunity for repentance and for cleansing of unrighteousness, treat that as God's mercy. Don't walk away and be the disobedient and contrary people that are spoken of in verse 21. Why were they disobedient and contrary? What's going on? Well, they were saying, "We don't need this." They're saying, "We're already okay. We don't. We don't need to pay attention to God's call to repentance." They 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 were walking away from this in absolute pride, saying, "We've already taken care of all that stuff. We already have the sacrificial system. We have our priests." We already have all the mitzvahs that we can do to get all of this and that. You know, we've got all this stuff already. We don't need that. Don't be like that. Every time, Christian, Christian already forgiven of your sins, Christian being sanctified, be sensitive to the times when God is showing you mercy in calling you to repentance. Humble yourself under the Lord. Yes, absolutely. If you are on the outside, if you don't believe in Christ, and you hear God calling you today for the very first time to be born again, humble yourself under that call. Recognize that you need to become like a little child and be converted. Humble yourself, repent, and believe. But believers, don't think to yourself, I did that once, and now I can ignore God's calls." Now I can ignore God's mercy in calling me to repent and believe on an ongoing basis. We have to keep our hearts open and say, God is still giving me so many opportunities for mercy. Sinner, come home. God is holding his hands out. He's holding you. Maybe you are among the disobedient and contrary people. Maybe this is maybe this is our kids in here. I don't know if we've got any disobedient kids in here. (laughs) Maybe this is adults in here. If you recognize this today, I want you to see God's offer of mercy and forgiveness and redemption held out to you right now. And sinner, come home. Come home to the Lord. Here's what a famous hymn says about this. Sometimes we Calvinists shy away from this hymn, but I think it's right here in Romans 10.21. It says, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace to call sinners to yourself. There's absolutely no reason that that would make sense except for your character being such that that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and showing love towards your enemies, sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God, I pray that if there are hearts that need to be softened, to come to Christ even for the very first time right now. I pray that you would grant that to be the case. And God, for us who came to Christ even a long time ago, I pray that you'd keep on softening our hearts. Help us to hear and understand and grow in the gospel of your grace and to recognize as you're showing us mercy and uh, help in, in opportunities for repentance and humility. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would call and that you would open hearts to heed the call. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.